Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show after another points-heavy week in the NFL. Loads for us to get into in our good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, as always, later in the show, we're going to be joined by Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick. We'll be talking about his former side, the Ravens, and them getting decimated by Kansas City on Monday Night Football. And his new book, The Elusive Search for the Next Great NFL Quarterback, has done a deep dive on Josh Allen, so we'll get into that as well. But before we get to any of that... Uh, the usual Motley crew are with me. Matthew Sherry, editor of Gridiron. How are we doing, buddy? Yeah, good, man. Looking stunning in that Alabama shirt. Absolutely. Roll Tide. Oh, God. Horrific. I mean, I'm not an Alabama fan. I do know I'm, fan. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a college football fan who was in a gift shop outside of the stadium with Simon Clancy once and thought, yeah, I'll have a T-shirt. <laughs> right, we'll, allow it. we'll allow it. Simon Clancy is also with us. Simon, do you uh, back up Matthew on this Sainer statement? I've never been to Tuscaloosa. I've no idea what he's talking about. That's uh, <laughs> uh, not true. But I was there. I was there. Absolutely heartbreaking. Kaylin Kayla, have you ever been to Tuscaloosa? And if so, did you come away with an Alabama shirt, despite obviously not being an Alabama fan? I actually haven't. I think the only SEC game I've been to is Kentucky football, which is probably the worst one to go to. <laughs> that, is, that is genuinely shameful. Disgrace. Yeah. By the way, SEC football is the is the absolute best because they allow you to go from the media uh, suite down to the sideline in the fourth quarter. That's why you should go and watch games in the SEC. That's really cool. It's insane. Matthew and I went down and watched the last quarter of Mississippi State leading Alabama with those cowbells. It was one of the greatest moments of my entire 33 years on this earth. <laughs> it, it's uh-huh. a rel- it, <laughs> Not only is it a relatively short list, but apparently it's been shortened by a solid 10 years as well. If so I mean, it's, it's a lot more than sad, I think. <laughs> I'm trying to be kind, mate. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Right, let's get into the good, the bad and the ugly of the NFL right now. And let's start off with the good, the only quarterback probably in the NFL who is in any way approaching MVP uh, Russ in the uh, in the standings right now is Aaron Rodgers. Why has it all come together for the Green Bay quarterback this year? Is it a second year with Matt LaFleur? Or is it maybe just that the chip on the shoulder of the drafting of Jordan Love has got him with that little bit of a kick up the backside that he needs? Let's go to Caelan. Great question. I think it's a combination of both. I think it's very interesting. This is a quarterback who is not afraid to voice how he feels about the offenses that he's playing in very openly. We saw his last season with McCarthy. He was publicly voicing his discontent with that offensive and and with the play calling in particular, sort of blaming McCarthy publicly after games. So I think it's really interesting. We've come just two years later, and now he's expressing this love and this contentment in this offense. And I think the comfort of the second year in this offense and the relationship that Rodgers and LaFleur are clearly building where now they know what each other likes. They are much more, you know, in tune and sync. I think that's a big part of it this season. And also the hard count. The man is a mastermind. (laughs) He's a mastermind. It's incredible. It's a good question with Monday Night Football last night as well, because we saw Patrick Mahomes using some of those same abilities. And by the way, on the Mike McCarthy point, if anyone's watched the Cowboys the last three weeks, then Aaron Rodgers has been absolutely justified in everything that he said <laughs> yeah. during his last season with McCarthy. But there is that kind of conversation of the, the quarterbacks who know how to do that well. You've now got 16 games a season, not just your home games, you're able to do that. And Simon, that's going to give Rodgers a huge advantage on top of the innate ability he's got. 
I mean, he's the hard count king anyway, and so this is going to help home and away. And you saw that against New Orleans the other night. I think Caitlin's point, obviously, about Jordan Love is, has kind of fired him up. I think the thing that seems to be happening most of all is that he seems to be having more fun than I've ever seen him at any point in his career. He's laughing, he's smiling, he's joking. You know, when Jay Sternberger made his first catch and, uh, you know, having had a couple of drops last week, he was joking with him. When he came back to the huddle, he was messing around on the sideline. He's wiping sweat from Jordan Love's bra, playing fantastically well. He's, play, you know, and he he didn't become a bad quarterback overnight. If he slipped out of the top five, it was probably only to be the seventh best quarterback in the league over the last couple of years. And now he's back where he belongs as the one of the two or three preeminent passers in the league. So, you know, when he just drops back and flicks the wrist like he did with that, certainly those two deep balls to, um, to Alan Lazard the other night, it's a beautiful thing. Sherry, you've had your moments of doubt. Yeah, massively. I mean, I, I would argue he, he fell below the top, a decent way below the top five in the last couple of years, to be honest. You know, I think he became incredibly risk-averse, just didn't throw the ball down the field anywhere near as much and, and was very obviously just trying to, to stop interceptions. But I, I, I think the comfort level is huge. I mean, without wanting to just echo everybody else's sentiments, he looked massively uncomfortable at the start of last season, running bootlegs and everything else. It just didn't look right. And the difference now is, is night and day. So, you know, I, th- I think it's a combination. I, I, I said in week one, I could see such similarities between the Brady Garoppolo situation and the Rodgers Love situation in that it just reinvigorated him at the right time. Wonderful to see, though. I mean... I have definitely been more of a critic of Aaron Rodgers than most, but I ultimately accept that a late career renaissance from Aaron Rodgers combined with Russell Wilson playing like he is, combined with the quarterbacks on the AFC side, make the league a lot more interesting over the next three or four years. So long may it continue. There's an important trust issue, though, with Matt LaFleur. I think you go back to 2011... For the first 215 plays of that that season, he ran the ball or scrambled 45 times. This season, he's scrambled three times out of 213 plays. And that means he's fitting within the constraints of Matt LaFleur's offense. And, and there's a trust issue between the two of them. And it was clear that he'd lost trust in Mike McCarthy towards the end of that of his tenure in Green Bay. And clearly the two of them, after a few initial road bumps and the drafting of Jordan Love, are clearly sort of in sync. And, and that's great to see. All right, let's move on and talk about what well, we're talking about, the one quarterback and the hard count. I mentioned Pat Mahomes. We all saw Monday Night Football and uh, the fact that we can you know, say everything we want about Lamar Jackson and the whole the record of 21-1 and against the rest of the league and 0-3 against the Chiefs. And we'll get... Brian Billick's thoughts on that a little bit later. But what we did get to see was we got to see Eric Fisher become the first number one overall pick to catch a touchdown since Keyshawn Johnson. We saw a, a fullback on a, well, it wasn't really even a pitch or a toss. It was just kind of a, a little scoop pass to him. The play designs were absolutely brilliant. And it's something we've seen from Reedy that early in seasons or early in games for his whole career. But that combination of him, the enemy and Mahomes is just, it creates magic every week. I mean, we've seen him do it on fourth down in the Super Bowl as well, which is still one of the greatest play calls I've ever seen. Interestingly, both that play call and the one last night are definitely from Old Navy film that I think he's just basically mined. So if the Patriots are planning for this week, I would be mining that. I mean, Bill Belichick knows Navy film like the back of his hand anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I, I feel like he's taking certain bits from the same from the same thing. It's wonderful to watch. Reed now is... He's in a very similar position to Belichick, actually. He is so obviously at the top of his game. You know, Tom Brady talked about having the answers to the test at that Atlanta Super Bowl. That's what Andy Reid is as a coach right now. And it's just a joy to watch. And you, you can almost see that he's been freed up by winning the Super Bowl last year. And that's terrifying for the rest of the league because the only thing stopping Andy Reid being 
an all-time great head coach was was the, those pressure moments at the end of the game. And, and it remains to be seen. I'm sure he'd still have his issues with that. But he, he just looks a free head coach with the greatest offensive mind that there is in football right now and, and the greatest quarterback talent we've seen in decades. You know, that combination is terrifying and, and, you know, impossible to beat. I mean, we could get on to the Ravens game plan. I'm sure we will later on. But it's a joy to behold at the moment. Yeah, before facing the Chiefs, I think the Ravens defense was first in points allowed, first in turnovers caused, first in rushing touchdowns allowed, in turnover percentage, and points per drive allowed. Like They were a good defense, and this is what Andy Reid's masterminding can do. I don't know how, as a defensive coordinator, as a head coach preparing for the Chiefs, I mean, how do you prepare when you have literally no idea what he is going to do? Imagine being like a linebacker and trying to defend that underhand pass to the fullback. I mean, I don't know how you practice to play the Chiefs at this point because there is just no pattern necessarily in the way that there is with so many other head coaches that you play against and can prepare for. And and Edward Salah is a a big win for them as well. You look what he did in week one. And that opens up another weapon that was hardly used at all last night. And, and they're, they're a terrifying proposition. I, I don't think I've ever seen a more talented team in the NFL. And certainly not that combination of Reed and Mahomes. is just It reminds me of Walsh Montana. It's, it's just deadly. I would say that much as we talked about the Jordan Love, Aaron Rodgers thing, I would say that Eric Bynum going from running backs coach to offensive coordinator has almost helped give Andy Reid the sort of kick that we're seeing Rodgers take from Love's presence in Green Bay, just in terms of younger thought, coming from college, being at Colorado as offensive coordinator there, bringing new ideas, new play designs, all those sorts of things. I think that's that's just meshed so beautifully. Uh, the final on the good, and we're going to be talking about the positives and negatives of NFL planning over the next kind of 10 minutes. But let's start off with the positives, because we've just had, in the first three weeks, a record number of lows of penalties, a record numbers of high in scoring. And I think we're, to be fair, looking at a situation where they've masterminded making the NFL as entertaining as it's ever been, as displayed by crazy games in Seattle, the Bills-Rams game, the Titans-Vikings game. We are getting week in, week out, big comebacks, big scoring games. And it's as much as there are football purists out there who will be finding reasons to complain about this, in terms of getting up their numbers and making sure it's an entertaining product at a time when people desperately need entertainment, it feels like that all the decisions they've made have been for the positive. I will say, I don't think the offensive production with these high scoring is going to continue past mid-season because it seems to me that tackling has been a huge oh. issue across the league. It's not even necessarily like, oh, one team looks really bad. I mean, there have been so many instances of just some really poor tackling, like from last weekend, what comes to mind is an Allen Robinson touchdown at Atlanta. And yes, it is Atlanta's defense, which is really struggling. The, but there the were Kamara touchdown as well. Exactly. Oh. It's just like two-hand touch almost at this point in the season. So I think at some point we're going to level out here and the defenses are going to remember how to properly tackle. And I do think the lack of the preseason is contributing to that. Yeah, I mean, it generally happens like this. I mean, it'll it'll explode at the start. And then as the, wind, as the weather gets colder and... And defences get up to speed. And, and frankly, offences get nicked up a little bit. You know, the speed slows down. It will level out. But it's been great. I mean, you know, I think a lot of it is to do with teams being more willing to go for it on fourth down, which stops... If I was the Chiefs now, I would. I don't think I'd ever 
punt. Can you see a situation where they get into third and five and don't convert in one of two plays? I mean, it looks unstoppable. But do you know one thing I think is actually interesting? It's, it's more of a bigger picture thing. But obviously with what we'll get on to in a moment with COVID is the, the referendum of Roger Goodell, the commissioner, is, is going to happen based on what happens over the six months we've just had and the current time. He has done exceptionally well so far. I mean, the penalty situation is very much a diktat from the league. And it, it's, it's a well-judged scenario right now. It really is. And, and Goodell has had lots of critics over the years. They've got a lot right in the last six months, more so than at any other point in his career, I think. So watching from above, I'm, I'm really interested in that, in that storyline of how that affects people's opinion of him and, and his tenure as commissioner. Well, I think that leads us on nicely to the next point of conversation, which is, and we're recording this on Tuesday evening, as we always do, and we are currently unaware, unless it's happened in the last 15, 20 minutes and someone wants to let me know, whether or not Steelers-Titans is still intended to go ahead this weekend. I'd be kind of astonished if it is, to be honest, particularly with the quite simple and elegant solution they have to that one fixture being fixed. But right now we know that Uh, Eight members of the Tennessee Titans have tested positive for COVID. It's after their outside linebacker coach, who also happens to be the defensive play caller with no actual DC in Tennessee, tested positive prior to the game with Minnesota over the weekend. We now know that three players and five playing staff or football staff have tested positive. Those five staff are all believed, whilst some coaches, not all, to have travelled to Minnesota this weekend. And through the excellent test and tracing, the contact tracing that the NFL do have in place, they have identified 48 specific people who were in close contact with those who have tested positive and further testing's going on. Now, as we speak, Tennessee won't be back in their building until Saturday and be doing all of their meetings online until then. And the Vikings, we certainly expect to be out of their building for the next two days while they retest, check isolate, go through everything that they need to go through Tennessee's opponents this past weekend. They, they are very fortunate, as I said, in that uh, there's a very simple solution if the only game affected is Titans-Steelers because of the way the bye weeks line up. You can shift Raven-Steelers from week seven to week eight, place Titans-Steelers on week seven and basically move both bye weeks to this week coming week. That's not going to happen when this happens going forwards. We know that right now the NFL have in place a plan to move the Super Bowl back up to four weeks. But right now there isn't, at the moment, bye weeks scheduled in the season to make, you know, make up for any extra weeks immediately. Have they maybe missed a trick, Matt, the NFL here, by not making sure that they broke up the season into quarters, into thirds, in advance so that they had some weeks ready to go to make up these games? I don't think so. I think they've got flexibility built into it and they'll execute that if they need to. When Peter King wrote the piece he wrote, I came away thinking that they had huge contingencies in place and I, and I still think that that's the case and, and I think it's very sensible. You know, I can see a scenario, I, I think if I had to predict it, I would say the playoffs will be bubbled similar to what the NBA did and that makes sense as well. But yeah, I think for right now, it's going to happen and, and frankly, I, I would be very surprised if they wanted to set the precedent this week of the game not going ahead. If it's three players who've tested and everybody else comes back negative, I think the game will go ahead. And I can understand why they would do that because ultimately you would rather not... You, contingencies are contingencies for a reason. You'd rather not use them. And if it does only three players, people got scared by the number of eight, but from what I understand, it's five personnel people. So I think if it's three players, the game will go ahead. And I, I just don't think you can criticise them. It's an impossible situation 
you know, I don't think you want to push the Super Bowl back unless you have to. And there's no way of finding out if you're going to have to until you actually start the season and see how it goes. So it provided they've got that fat built into it, which they say they have, I'm fine with what they're doing. I've actually really been surprised that they have not had this happen yet because they aren't in bubbles, as we were talking about earlier. The players are living normal lives for the most part. I mean, I was just talking to one last night who was at a car dealership getting a new car. So... I mean, that's regular behavior, right? Like they're doing regular chores. They're going to grocery stores. They're doing things that they're interacting with the masses. I even saw a player doing a charity event last week at like a boys and girls club, which to me, I thought for sure those types of things they would not be doing this season just to be extra safe. So this is going to happen. And I do think they have done a really good job so far. And I think with the Titans, it's going to be really interesting to see if these three players, are they all in the same position group? And how does that affect the competitive balance? That's what I'm kind of interested in. And then also preparing virtually all week. If they play this game, it's going to be really interesting to see how they play. Are they noticeably worse? Or is it exactly the same? I would love to ask a player right now if you feel like you could virtually prepare for a game and then play it at the same level as you would if you were in person. I mean, I guess the answer is you can't, but... It, it kind of is what it is, isn't it? Like, there are lots of elements to this. Just say, for example, now, how much of an advantage did um, did Kansas City gain last night with no fans in Baltimore? Just say there's a vaccine in October and all NFL stadiums become accessible to the public. Then there's going to be a game that might affect the number one seed in the AFC where there isn't the same advantage. There's going to be disadvantages this season, isn't there? Everyone has to accept that it's not going to be fair. And, and Simon, one person said to me on Twitter earlier, well, if it's not going to be fair, maybe we shouldn't play the season. I'm like, trust me, <laughs> these teams want to be playing yeah. and earning the money. Yeah. They'll accept losing a couple of games they might not normally lose in order to make sure that financially this whole thing happens. 100%. And I think, you know, it's really difficult to point the finger at anybody and say, oh, you've done a bad job with this. So, you know, clearly incredible plans in place in terms of worst case scenario situations that we know nothing about at this stage. You know, what happens if... Half a team goes down. What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? What what happens if an entire quarterback route? It's why Jake Fromm is is practicing away from the Buffalo Bills in terms of you know if the Bills quarterbacks go down, there is a reason you know why he's away because he's not in contact with Josh Allen and uh, and the backup. So Tom Pelissaro has just tweeted that as of now, Titans, Steelers, and Texans Vikings are both on for Sunday. I mean, they've done it right. All the teams have done it right. The NFL have done it right. And you're trying to control a completely uncontrollable situation, which is very difficult to do. Well, let's talk about the actual bad then, because that was kind of something that straddled the line, depending on what we see over the next few days. And the actual bad. I mean, we talked about Monday Night Football a little bit already. So let's talk about the other side of the ball with the Baltimore Ravens. Are they going to forever run into this Chiefs juggernaut and the matchup just doesn't suit them? Are they going to be able to figure that out? Is it a case of that there are limitations there that they're not going to get over, Caelan? I think in this game, Lamar Jackson needed to be perfect. That's kind of what Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, their talent on offense means the other offense has to be just as perfect and has to be spot on or you're never going to score enough points to keep up with them. And so I think what we've seen in the three times that Jackson and the Ravens have played the Chiefs, he hasn't been at his top game. I mean, we saw his passing last night was, you know, left a lot to be desired. He missed on a several different occasions that he needed to hit. So I think until, you know, his performance can rise to the level of Patrick Mahomes, 
in those head-to-head matchups, they're going to keep being their kryptonite, as as Jackson said last night. It, there's a problem developing in that they're losing exactly the same way every time they lose a game. Now, they don't lose many games. I would fear for them a little bit, and it, it's a good problem to have. It's not fear for them, like first overall pick fear for them. I think they have to win a Super Bowl early in this Lamar Jackson window because he is never going to be surrounded with a better situation than he is right now. And I include the coaching staff in that as well because I don't think Greg Roman will be there forever. And, and he it's kind another of to, it, old coach that Matt wants to see in a head coaching I mean, job. I'm, I'm really surprised he didn't talk about Wink Martindale. I've got some criticisms for Wink upcoming, but ultimately, you know, it's a problem. I mean, it just is. And the best teams are able to win in multiple different ways. The Ravens are not that team. They can win one way, they're very good at winning that way and therefore win a lot of games that way. Like Limited teams generally don't win as many games as Baltimore do, but ultimately, it's going to catch up with you. It's caught up with them in the playoffs the last two years and in both games against the Chiefs. And, and you fear that the ceiling for Baltimore has been a really great team who win 12 to 14 games in a season, but then will come up against an opponent who can make them play left-handed in the playoffs. And... and Right now, what we're seeing is they can't win left-handed. I thought their game plan was diabolical on, on defence. And I say that with all the love in the world for Wink Martindale. How you could watch that Chiefs-Chargers game last week whereby they almost never sent the blitz and have the game plan that they had in the first half is just beyond me. I mean, I just I don't understand the logic. Analytics don't support it. Film doesn't support it. So I thought they got that badly wrong. And that's disappointing from a coaching staff who I have a, a huge amount of respect for and actually think in terms of game planning, are as good as anybody out there. And John Harbaugh has been for a number of years. So so they got the game plan badly wrong and, and Patrick Mahomes will always punish that. I'll just add that a great offence beats great defence all the time for me because of the way that the rules have changed for defenders, because of the speed and the systems that we're seeing on offence, the integration more and more of... You go back five years and you look at the trepidation about introducing college systems into the NFL. Now look at where we are. Last night proved that great offence will always overcome great defence and the Ravens do have a great defence, but their offence is just not predicated to come from behind. It's a great running game but it's not a great passing game. And the, and the Chiefs were just able to contain that. And every time Mahomes was on the field, you look at the weapons he's got to throw to, it just felt like he could score at will. And at one point, before the fumble in the third quarter, it looked like the game could get ridiculously out of hand for Baltimore. And it has nothing to do with how good or bad a team they are. They are clearly a very good team. They just match up so poorly because the Chiefs' offense is just significantly better. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Colts Patriots when of course the it does. Patriots, just bring the were, Patriots into it. <laughs> they, were, they were very obviously the best two teams in the league, but one was their kryptonite, and that's a difficult position to be in. We saw how long that went on for. It's not a nice position for the Ravens to be so close yet so far away if they match up so poorly against such a great team. And on Simon's point about the kind of position of offences, possession of defences, I saw a stat on the last 10 Super Bowl champions DVOA. The defensive ranking falls outside of the top 12 on six out of 10 occasions. The offence, there's only two occasions it falls outside the top 12 and mostly there are top three, top four, top five offence. So... That old idea that defence wins championships might be out of the window, ladies and gents. That being said, there is a team whose offence has had to switch quarterback this past week and yet somehow are still 3-0. and It's in the city that you're based, Kaylin Kaler. How bad a 3-0 and team are the Chicago Bears? They're so confusing. Everything about them is confusing and it's even more confusing now that we have a different quarterback so we kind of have to just flip the script entirely. The defence, I can't tell what they are at this point because 
they've made some really crucial stops and they've they've come up big when it mattered but they're not consistent and they're allowing teams to score against them and they're definitely not the Chicago Bears defense that we've seen the last two years so that's really interesting and I think going forward Nick Foles is going to be very it's going to be very interesting to watch. There's a lot of doubt in Chicago and elsewhere about his injury uh, history and whether he will be able to make it. Because this is earlier than any of us thought that we would be seeing Nick Foles. Like, my own prediction was, like, week six. I thought we had a couple more weeks of the Trubisky era, uh, which is funny because when he was benched, it felt incredibly early. But then it also felt incredibly late, considering the context of how, how much of Mitch's inconsistency that we've seen over the last three years. So... I think it's going to be really interesting going forward. But we saw in that second half, Nick Foles just completely took over. He's so much more capable of throwing just more accurate. He's sharp. He seems to be a much more confident leader just watching his field interactions and his post-game interview when he was talking about getting Anthony Miller to the right spot for a touchdown pass. And Miller is a player who has struggled with Mitch Trubisky. So I thought that was really interesting. And and it looked like the Foles of old of 2017. But we'll see which Nick Foles they get going forward. I actually saw a Bears fan suggest that he still wouldn't trade right now Sam Darnold for Mitch Trubisky. And that's not just a Bears fan, that's someone within the media who's a Bears fan. I'm not suggesting that Sam Darnold is a transcendent talent or anything, right? but Mitch Trubisky can't claim, Simon, to be in a situation. It's not like a David Carr situation. It's not like a Sam Darnold situation where he's not got what he needs around him to succeed. Darnold feels at least semi-salvageable. Trubisky is not salvageable. I I think Matt Nagy, two things. I think Matt Nagy is the luckiest head coach in the NFL, maybe over the last five years, to be 3-0 after making such a horrendous decision to go with Trubisky in the first place over Nick Foles. You know, that I mean, that is seriously lucky. Um, Uh The second point is that, and I think this is the one vice, or somebody tweeted that only 47% of Alan Robinson's targets this year were deemed catchable. And Alan Robinson liked that tweet, which I thought was absolutely... Absolutely, the biggest <laughs> sensational. But yeah, wow. Nagy is so lucky, and they're a terrible three and team. But interested to see where they go with Nick Foles. The only way Nagy isn't lucky is if it's the ultimate voodoo masterstroke. In that he essentially decided Nick Foles isn't good as a starting quarterback from the start of the season, <laughs> right. and would bring him in in week three, and he would become the Nick Foles who won the Super Bowl in Philadelphia, and then took them. To the playoffs, to, into the playoffs again the next year. They are one of the worst three and O teams I've ever seen. I seem to remember the Bills under Ryan Fitzpatrick getting to three or four and and they were a bad team. But yeah, they, they're not. It, it's it's absolutely astonishing that they're three and O. And and I find their defense odd as well, Kaelin. I mean, you know, this is not their defense of two years ago, which looked like being the bedrock of a team that could be really good for a number of years. I just really struggle to know how are the three and O. It's it, and you look at two of the games they've won. I mean. Two of the most improbable victories that you'll ever see. You're, if nothing else, they're resilient. But I think if they went 3-13, and 13, it wouldn't surprise me. Let's put it that way. They've had the benefit of a schedule, too. I mean, the Falcons, mm. as soon as Nick Foles took over, did anyone think the Falcons were going to win and hold on to a lead? I don't think there was anyone in this country or in the UK who thought that. <laughs> like, And then they had the Giants the week before. They haven't played yeah. anyone good yet. 
they don't play the Packers till very late in the season. So, you know, that's another 3-0 team mm. that when you compare those two, it's just comical. I mean, they've struggled to put away all three of those teams as well, including the Giants. If you're down 16 to the Falcons going into the fourth quarter, you've got them right where you want them. That's the point. <laughs> uh, right, let's talk about the ugly, and that's definitely one that comes under that conversation. Look, there are... A few coaches, and it's a bizarre season probably for any, for sacking a coach early, considering what's happening in the league, unless you have a very clear candidate in the building. It's fair to say Dan Quinn is a very liked man, both in the building and around the NFL. People have a very, very high level of respect for him, and he's a very, very nice individual from what I understand. But there is a serious problem in Atlanta, and I can't imagine he's going to be the head coach for very long, Simon. Right. I mean, uh, Matt made a great point in conversation at the weekend, which was essentially that the Banquin era ended at 28-3 in NRG Stadium. The ghosts that are still clearly in that building, in that team, you just can't exercise them. And that's been clear this season. It was clear last season for much of it. And it's been clear in those two. How do you come back, not only from that Super Bowl disaster, but how then do you come back from these two defeats that they've had already? I would not be, you know, Arthur Blank is not a sort of owner who makes rash decisions, but it does feel like you're getting towards some sort of end game. And I do wonder also about Matt Ryan. Again, Matt and I talked about this privately the other day, but at some point you just wonder... Is it worth a bit like Miami did with Ryan Tannehill? Is it a bit like just cashing in, getting probably a first round or an early second round pick back for him? Because he's still clearly got miles in the tank and just rebooting the whole thing because it just feels like they're never going to quite escape from from what happened at NRG Field in that Super Bowl. I mean, the, the dream scenario for football is for, um, for Matt Ryan to get traded to San Francisco where he would link up again with Kyle Shanahan. He's a better player than Jimmy Garoppolo. He had his MVP year underneath him. You know, I think I, I believe that San Francisco definitely explored Brady in the off season and ultimately landed that he wasn't a, a fit for that system. And I think absolutely they would see that as an upgrade. So that would be my dream scenario for for football. I think because and I'd be tempted to do it quickly, tank the season. Trevor Lawrence is there. Atlanta are perfectly placed to try and get into that mix with the Jets and and get Trevor Lawrence. I, and and I really do think it's it's come to that point because. It's just so stale, and to lose the same way repeatedly, it's a huge problem, and and they almost need to draw a line under it and and get all the ghosts out of the building, I think. Quinn was able to save his job and his staff last year when um, they went, I believe they had a 6-2 and run at the end of the season after really struggling for the first half of the season. I don't really see that happening for them this year, especially because their next game is Green Bay Packers. So at, I believe it's at Green Bay. So that is going to be a very tough test for them. I don't see them breaking their losing streak in Green Bay. And coach like ability is really interesting here because, you know, we all like Dan Quinn. He's been, he's treated the media very, very well. He's given access to his team. He has a great reputation. And I do think when it comes down to when you're getting fired, that actually does help you as a head coach. And that might give you a little bit more time than a coach who hasn't made the same effort and doesn't have that same reputation. There's another quarterback head coaching uh, conversation that needs to be had over in the NFC East because, First of all, Carson Wentz, as social media were convinced he was done. And yes, he had the one drive in the second half, but he has had a season of one very good half of football to start the year, followed by 10 atrocious quarters of football, 11 of you include overtime last weekend. But also the decision making from Doug Peterson was pretty poor all round. And the NFC East is a bit of a mess as it is 
anyway. But the Eagles somehow still being only half a game out at 0-2-1, whilst astonishing, the teams they've played, with the talent they've got, there's no way they should be the position they're in, Matthew. Talking about referendums on people. Doug Peterson will be a fascinating case study when, when all is said and done because this is a guy who really, to me, was a poster child for being hugely overpromoted when he got the job in the first place. Never really called players in Kansas City. It had been a meteoric rise for him. And then, obviously, he has... I think he had a good first season, if I remember rightly. And then, you know, you have this incredible Super Bowl run. And you keep having these runs into the playoffs. But it just increasingly... I keep going back to Frank Reich, but it does feel like he was the key part of it if you look at the evidence now that's building. And, I mean, some of the some of the protections, and I understand they've got issues in terms of injuries, of Wentz, it's just disastrous to watch. And... and you know, it's a good job there are no fans in the stadium in Philadelphia at the moment. I mean, they wouldn't be able to hear for the booing when they're trying to call on offence at the moment. And and you know what? Carson Wentz has to be salvageable. I mean, this is a guy who played at an MVP level before he got injured in the, the Super Bowl run. He's still incredibly young. But it's scary, isn't it? You know, you watch... You know, I watch the Bengals, who have what I think is the worst head coach in the NFL, and, and the way that the protection schemes for Joe Burrow are a disaster. And I can see David Carr part two in, in that situation. And, and I do fear that, again, if it isn't a new coach and a new voice in Philadelphia, that Wentz may never get back to that level. Well, look, let's, um, let's mention the NFC East as a whole, because right now they are 2-9-1 and one on the year. And when you consider you've got other divisions where i mean like the nfc west being the prime example right now who are what nine and three on the year as a division if the bears are as bad as we say they are and the saints don't actually pick their socks up then we're going to end up with uh, all three wildcats coming out of the <laughs> nfc west at this point it's gonna be the falcons yeah it's absolutely falcons the falcons the will be the seventh seed yeah yeah absolutely that's where we'll end up but uh, the NFC East as a whole, I just, I don't know, the Cowboys should in theory be the team to come out of there, but they lost Jason Garrett to the Giants. And by the way, I rewatched Giants 49ers today That's and the play calling for New York is disgustingly vanilla. It is so, so poor with Jason Garrett there. There was this idea that the Cowboys were going to move on and suddenly look like a viable team. And yeah, they scored plenty of points, but they're probably going to be the team to come out of that rancid division and I'm not sure they're good enough to have much of an impact on the playoffs. I think Washington, and I think the difficulty for Washington and and for the Giants is that they have talent on the offensive side of the ball. There's just not a great deal of it. You know, they are clearly rebuilding. Dwayne Haskins, I do feel a little bit sorry for because beyond Terry McLaurin, there isn't a great deal. He's getting crushed. That offensive line is not very good. When you lose Saquon Barkley, and it was a great point that Kayla made a couple of weeks ago about whether or not Barkley was a fit and whether or not actually the this could be the best thing for him in terms of the understanding that you can exist without Saquon uh, and it gives Daniel Jones more of an opportunity to grow. But, you know, Sterling Shepard was missing for the Giants. The whole division is an absolute omni-shambles. And to go back to Doug Peterson, I mean, I thought Anthony Lynn's decision the week before was pretty bad, but to, no. to punt on fourth down was A, a horrendous decision, but actually what hasn't been talked about nearly as much was that when they got into field goal range, they kept throwing it. Run the ball with Miles Sanders. You're in field goal range. You've got a kicker that can. Who was averaging it. about five yards a carry? Jake Elliott has made a 60 plus yarder in that stadium, mm-hmm. you know, two seasons ago. Just run the ball, kick it, walk off, win. Just astonishingly bad coaching from Doug Peterson. And- a coach who's consistently went for it too often on fourth down right. as well. <laughs> That's <laughs> a right. funny part, isn't it? Exactly. I want to see, see Jalen Hurts. I'm ready. Yeah. See, he's been on the field for like six offensive snaps, I believe. He almost had a bad fumble yesterday but recovered it 
but you know, I, he hasn't attempted to pass yet. So I think Doug Peterson said it's too early. It's a knee jerk reaction to be calling for Jalen hurts. But I do think you don't draft a quarterback in the second round to just sit on your bench forever. Put him in, put him in for a drive, see what he can do. Test him out. It's interesting to think to ask what to think about the hair, the, uh, the hats pick now that, the whole world appears to have fallen out of love with Taysom Hill in the biggest way ever. Like, <laughs> right. It feels like everybody now hates Taysom Hill. Out again. It's gone, isn't it? It's gone from the hero of a near playoff win last year to, to everybody wanting rid of him. I'm still a member of the Taysom Hill fan club, unashamedly <laughs> so as well. Do you want to hear my favourite stat of the week? You were talking about play-action passes and we were just mentioning the Giants. They ran three play-action passes on Sunday and have run 11 all season. Even when they had Saquon Barkley in there, they have run 11 play-action passes. They're dreadful. They're absolutely awful. They are barely an NFL team, but it doesn't matter because we blew them out, so it's fine. Uh, Do we know what Jason Garrett's credentials are outside of going to a... (laughs) An Ivy League university. Because I've never seen any offensive innovation. Being mates with Jerry Jones? <laughs> it's, that, it's very odd. That's that's about it. We'll get into our things we loved, things we hated, and our own heralded performers of the week coming up. But first, let's hear the thoughts, particularly on Monday Night Football, but also on Josh Allen in Buffalo of Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick here on The Gridiron Show. Uh, how are you doing, sir? Are you uh, recovered from a pretty wild week three? There was. It was a lot of high-scoring games. I think we're seeing uh, offenses get into rhythm, and particularly with that uh, Monday night game between Baltimore and Kansas City. Boy, Patrick Mahomes was just spectacular. They looked pretty overwhelming. It's been a – and we've seen all the stats today, but for your former team, they are 21-1 and against the rest of the NFL and 0-3 against the Chiefs. Is the golfing quality just because the Chiefs are so good, or do you think there is a stylistic – problem when those two teams face well I think it's a combination of things if you're going to beat the Ravens who are a dynamic team you got to do a couple things one you've got to contain Lamar Jackson with either a five or six man rush make him operate from the pocket make him throw from the pocket now you you do at a risk because they're, they're very good at creating big plays down the field so if you can put that umbrella in and, and put the top on the defense where they don't get the big verticals make him operate in the intermediate areas consistently to beat you then find that obviously with an offense that can continually hold on to the ball the best offense you know the best defense is a good offense don't put it back in the hands of Lamar Jackson and that's exactly what Kansas City did they just did that steady as they can do with Patrick Mahomes that constant chipping away, chipping away, then come up and make the big play. They had the ball for 34 minutes, which is typically a strength of the Ravens. They put together the trifecta of not giving up the big plays, making Lamar beat you strictly from the pocket, and then running an offense that basically doesn't give the ball back and is very effective against a good Raven defense. That will not only beat the Ravens, that will beat a lot of people. Undoubtedly. I think people are worried about what they saw from Lamar Jackson last night. I have to say the first two weeks, I thought that we saw a marked improvement in his, in his throwing at the intermediate level, at the deeper level as well. So I know there were drops last night, but surprised to see that he did struggle so much from the pocket. Yeah, and, and again, it's a combination of the things. When, when they can, can continue to bludgeon you with the running game and now get that occasional big play down the field – then there's going to be that efficiency. But when you take away some of those options and you force him strictly from the pocket, and that's the key, you got to do a slow – there. I think uh, Steve Spagnuolo and the Kansas City Chiefs did a great job of a five- or six-man slow rush, kept changing it up so he didn't know where they were coming from, 
and kind of nail down those edges. Don't let him step up into the pocket. He's still a dynamic talent and can move around and make some things happen. Uh, and as I said, it's in conjunction with the fact it's all well and good to do that, but you've got to do it also with an offense that just tick, tick, tick away, all of a sudden get the three and then the seven and then another three and then another seven and put that kind of pressure on the Ravens that they're not used to dealing with. And that's, that's a pretty good formula. Is it a limitation? Is it a formula that they can overcome if we get this matchup again in January? Yeah, they can. And, and more importantly, is it a formula that others can repeat? We saw Tennessee do it last year in the playoff game because they were just so overpowering and so physical in the running game. So they were able to hold on to the time of possession. Dean Peace, who was the defensive coordinator who had been in Baltimore, knew, okay, I'm not going to give you the big play down the field. We'll give up some things on the edges, and yeah, Lamar may get outside occasionally, but they're not going to do that consistently enough to beat us. And it worked when it was all in conjunction when you combined it with that punishing running game. Well, for Kansas City, it was more the intermediate passes. They ran the ball well when they did run it, but obviously Patrick Mahomes and his ability to hit the underneath routes. Then there is the the question of how you beat Mahomes himself defensively. Last week, the Chargers only blitzed Pat Mahomes on on two of 48 dropbacks. Yesterday, Don Martindale went heavy on the blitz and and got torn up doing it. Were you surprised to see that that was their approach? And what do you do to try and contain Pat Mahomes? Yeah. No, it didn't surprise me because that's who they are. No team blitzes and pressures more than the ball. More Ravens. Now, again, going into the game, you can say, well, okay, I know that's who we are, but maybe we ought to think twice about it because they have such talent down the field. And the back end of the Ravens, who play a lot of man, has been hurt. They lost Tavon Young. So that, that secondary, although it's fairly solid, they got Jimmy Smith, they've got uh, the other kid from Alabama, I'm drawing a blank here in terms of name, but is, is pretty darn good. But you got to match up across the board. And they just left themselves too vulnerable with regards to the big plays down the field, and they made a lot of big plays. They had five explosive plays. Well, that's going to get you beat. And the Ravens had none. And Lamar Jackson was 0-5 in throws down the field. So that kind of exchange isn't going to happen. So the pressures didn't get home. You didn't create any real turnovers. Mahomes didn't throw an interception. You got no sacks. So the pressure, even though that's what you do, wasn't working and so the Ravens may have to rethink it next time and be a little more passive on the back end. Is it that case of that you need to look at, you see how well the Patriots scheme up against mobile quarterbacks using that mush rush style, or you try running a contain, or you try running a spy, or, or do something just entirely different in order to make sure that you've, you at least try and make Mahomes limited in some way? Yeah, yeah. As, as one coach calls it, you got to make him play left-handed, so to speak. But the problem is compared to, say, maybe a Lamar Jackson, if you limit Patrick Mahomes to just the pocket, he can still beat you there. And they have so much talent on the outside. And there's so many different ways that they can attack you. It's clearly a moving target. You can't give up the big plays. If you give them up the explosive plays, you're dead. But having said that, there because typically with a player like that or an offense like that, you just say, okay, we're going to make you go a series of 10, 12 play drives and beat us, then so beat us. So, so better. You're just better than we are. But we're not going to give you these big plays. Well, there are teams, as we saw when Houston played, the Houston did a nice job against Kansas City, not giving up a lot of the big plays. So we saw Patrick Mahomes in the running game and the underneath passing game just methodically down the field and score with those 10 and 12 play drives. The other thing is when, uh, when Baltimore did get, did get down there, they had to sell field goals. 
And you can't trade field goals for touchdowns with a team like Kansas City. It's just not going to hold up. There was one play in particular last night where I just got, I am generally from the kind of bum Phillips school of, you've got third and long, of course you bring pressure. But I can remember there was one play that was a third and seven in the fourth quarter when they pulled it within a touchdown and the left end ends up crashing inside. And you just see Mahomes goes, right, I'm rolling out to the right and I'm doing this with my legs no matter what. And you, you just feel like everything that you do, anything you try, any trick, anything you do to try and beat him, there's always something else that he can do to beat you. It must be so frustrating. You cannot lose contain on either Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. If you let them get outside the structure of the formation, your, your back end just can't hold up. There are just too many options. So you're right. When that Once I saw that end come down and crash in, and then he was going to spin out, by the time he spun out, Mahomes was already to the outside. You're dead. Now, we saw some interesting quarterback decisions this week. I think in particular what we saw with the Chicago Bears, uh, Mitch Trubisky being dropped mid-game, Nick Foles coming in and getting that comeback. What better week, Coach Billick, than to go out and get yourself a book that's all about the quarterback factor, the Q factor, and the elusive search for finding the next great NFL quarterback. Tell us a little bit about the book and, and how it is so applicable to any year of the NFL, really. Yeah, well, it, obviously, it's it's the number one topic in the NFL because there's no position more important than the quarterback. And the fact of the matter is, particularly with first-round draft picks, it's a 50-50 crapshoot. I mean, in what process, in what world can you take, now in hindsight, given a Mitchell Trubisky in front of a Patrick Mahomes and a Deshaun Watson? In what world do you take a Josh Rosen at number 10 and you don't take Lamar Jackson till 32? So it's the process itself that we are analyzing. Certainly the 2018 draft with those five quarterbacks taken is our backdrop. But we looked in great detail at what is this 50-50 combination and how do we get just a little bit better, incrementally better. It's the same in business when I'm hiring people. How can I just be a little bit better so they're not, we're not wasting resources, we're not wasting salary cap dollars? And the key is the extrapolation of what you're looking at in making these decisions. And that's basically what the Q factor is like about. We went back and we began prior to the 2018 draft. We looked at these five quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar Jackson. And to quote my mentor and good friend, Denny Green, they were who we thought they were. Now we know three years later, the immaturity and the up and down of Baker Mayfield, which was the concern coming in. Sam Darnold, solid looking player, but was really not able to get over the top and make enough big plays. Josh Allen is the outlier. You know, the completion percentage or lack thereof was the concern going in. He has seemed to overcome that playing brilliantly right now. Josh Rosen, people weren't sure. I mean, he had all the mechanics, but just wasn't able to put it together in college and obviously not in the NFL. And Lamar Jackson, a lot of people want to make him a wide receiver. What did we miss about Lamar Jackson? So it's really about going back and reevaluating that process and how we can be just a little bit better. Very specifically on Josh Allen, considering you've done the deep dive, a lot of question marks over he was brilliant the first two weeks, but going against a Jets and a Dolphins defense that were undermanned. It's a Rams defense that you definitely can't say that against. And, and whilst they allowed the big comeback, he still goes and gets the win. What did you see this week from him? And, and are you convinced that he has turned that corner? He's been brilliant. You know, the, the completion percentage, and typically if a player, he is in college, if there's a deficiency, and for him it was completion percentage, it's not going to get better in the NFL. And it hadn't been in the first two years. He was sub 60%. But he has kind of cracked the code. He's a big, physical, impressive athlete. No question about it. But he is... 
they, they've wrapped the right pieces around him. He's showing he's 70% completion down the field. He's on pace for better than 50 touchdowns, six uh, single-digit interceptions. And you'll notice on that second drive, they got inside the red zone, three straight design quarterback running plays, not just scrambling around making something happen, but one designed option. He got outside the edge. So he has definitely become the complete package, and, and uh, at least so far – Buffalo sitting there at three and zero looked like the cream of the crop in the AFC East, and he looks like, along with a very very good defense. So they've got the complete package of Josh Allen. Well, the Q factor, the search, the elusive search for the next great NFL quarterback is available from today here in the UK, uh, and I certainly believe is out now in the states. So it's going to be well worth. I'm going to be picking it up and giving it a read, and then grilling it on you next week. I'm sure, Coach Billick. Uh, and as always, uh, thank you to X Tech Pads and to yourself for the time. Uh, we'll speak again next week. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Brian Billick there joining us with X-Tech Pads. Right, let's get into it, guys. Things we loved from this week. Uh, I'll come to you, Caitlin, first. What's something that we've not mentioned that you loved? So Peter King had this stat in his column, and it just it blew my mind. So Russell Wilson threw 20 touchdown passes in 16 games in 2014. And that was the season where they went to the NFC Championship and a Super Bowl berth. He already has 14 touchdown passes in three games in 2020. So he is well on his way to breaking that total. And it's the most in three games in NFL history. Just a question on it. And this isn't, this is genuinely not a Seahawks hate thing, which I'm sure I'll get stick for it being, but it's not sustainable. Surely the rate at which they are scoring right now for a 16 game season, plus the playoffs, surely the defense have to do something over the next 16 weeks. I would think so. And also, I think the Seahawks defense playing so poorly is eventually going to be a bigger problem for them than it is right now. Even I am a Russell Wilson believer at this point. And to be fair, inspired DK Metcalf after one of the worst plays in NFL history to pick himself back up, to brush himself off. Apparently, he went and he said to him afterwards, as Mike Silver was reporting this and just said, you know, good players don't take plays off. And Metcalf really took that to heart and then was delighted to score the winning touchdown. So... Mr. Unlimited proving that maybe the nickname is deserved, even if it's cringy as hell. Uh, Matthew, (laughs) what did you love this week? I do love everything I see from the Buffalo Bills, and it's something I've been on for basically since Sean McDermott's first season, and there is hard evidence of that. And it's not because I've been proven right on McDermott, who I've loved all along. I just love everything they've done. I love the way they've gone about it. I am slowly but surely looking at whether I need to move off my Josh Allen is crap position and whether he is... (laughs) dramatically improving I mean I would say he has got the best talent around him in the league and maybe the best well one of the best uh, coaching staffs as well but Brian Dable is is scheming it up beautifully on offense that's the thing I'd really want to point out that that whole staff including the personnel side it's all coming together perfectly and you know if Allen is actually going to be a good player then the Bills are around for a long long time with with these people so yeah a franchise that deserves to win at some point as well. Uh, so, yeah, loving what I'm seeing from Buffalo. Simon? Beards. Ryan Fitzpatrick running around on Thursday night with his big old beard, blocking for people. There's so much joy that he brings, which is wonderful. But uh, the Steeler defence, I think, has been phenomenal. And I, I saw an amazing stat. I, I raised your stat about Russell Wilson, Kaylin. Um <laughs> They have not allowed one drive of five minutes or more through three games. That's 34 drives. They have not allowed a single drive of longer than five minutes. I think that is uh, outstanding. And actually what they've done, they're 3-0, and and Ben Roethlisberger has managed to ease his way back in. And there's some serious talent 
at that wide receiver position as uh, as James Washington and uh, Deontay Johnson and uh, Chase Claypool begin to support Juju Smith-Schuster. And they're really, um, it's a really impressive showing from those receivers. But yeah, that defense has been terrific. Right, things that we hated from the NFL this week. Then Matthew, I'll come to you first. What hill do you want to die on this week? I mean, it's it, it is it is absolutely Zach Taylor. I've watched back the Cincinnati-Philly game for my sins. And some of the things I've seen on offense in terms of Derek Barnett getting blocked by tight ends, who's having a really nice start to the season. and It's just a disaster. It's it's painful to watch a guy who I absolutely loved watching in Joe Burrow. And you can almost see already... The spark that existed in week one disappearing. That needs to be a new head coach. And Cincinnati don't move quickly. I really worry uh, for the whole situation because I've just. Zach Taylor was a weird hire in the first place, and I've seen nothing since to convince me that he can be a good NFL head coach. Certainly not right now. He could be in time, but he was employed way too early. And some of the basics that they're getting wrong in terms of putting. A support system around Burrow is, is painful. It's really bad to watch. And it, it's while the team are in the final productive years of players like, well, AJ Green's not really been productive, but him, Geno Atkins, Carlos Dunlap, all coming to the end of their careers. You almost feel like it needed to be a Panthers-style reset and uh, instead we're potentially just going to have the Bengals limping along and wasting a talent again. Kaylin, It's something I loved, but I hated that it didn't work. What could have been the game-winning hook and ladder call with the Chargers. Herbert threw a beautiful pass to, I think it was Keenan Allen, and then the pitch just died. Um, So it would have been, they could have walked it in for the win. And that kind of play when it's called so well, designed so well, when it doesn't work, it almost physically hurts to watch it. Genuinely devastating. I I like, honestly, I would have been my favorite player of the season so far, let alone probably in the last five. I just gutted for it to not work. Matthew looks... Soul destroyed. <laughs> Simon. <It was> heartbreaking. <laughs> what did you hate from this week, Simon? Loath as I am to throw other journalists under the bus, I would just say that the Thursday night NFL Network pregame show was the biggest omni shambles I've ever seen in my entire life. It was horrendously dumbing down. You know, and there is a reason why ex-players should not go into broadcasting. And it was on full evidence on Thursday night. Steve Smith show. and Michael <laughs> Irvin. I mean, they did 45 minutes on a, on a, essentially a competition between a moustache and a beard. It was horrendous. So, yes, um, whilst not people under the bus, you're under the bus and I'm reversing over you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember getting thrown under the bus for throwing someone under the bus in an earlier week. And, and I have to say, like, I'm a, a big fan of Colleen Wolfe. So I think she's a really talented broadcaster, but you can only work with the pieces that are around you in that situation. And sometimes those pieces... Don't click? Is that a nice way of saying it? I hope so. What about unheralded performers of the week? Simon, come to you first. Matt LaFleur, who I think is coaching out of his skin, I've got to say. I think the the concepts that, that Green Bay are running, the way that they're using the receivers... Devontae Adams didn't play at the weekend but they are on on Sunday night but they were able to attack that secondary with Alan Lazar they got Sternberger into the game I think he's coaching really well he, he's got the highest win percentage of any Green Bay coach over the first 19 games and two stats really stand out for me they lead the league with 6.31 yards per carry when they lead games which is fantastic to be able to put games away to be able to control the clock control the ball 
they had seven drives of five plus minutes and seven drives of 10 plus plays against New Orleans. That's how you keep a really good Alvin Kamara, who I thought was really terrific the other night, off the field by controlling the clock, using those running backs, using the hard count. Rodgers is so good at getting the clock down under sort of three seconds. And that all comes from what we talked about earlier on that relationship with Matt LaFleur. So Matt LaFleur, my unsung hero of the week, great coaching. It does somewhat help that uh, Marshall and Lattimore might be the most boom or bust week-to-week player in the NFL and that Janoris Jenkins has apparently forgotten the rules entirely uh, well, on Lattimore, Sunday night. He, but... It's also because he has three mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never forgive that, will we? We'll never forgive I've having never three mobile phones. <laughs> Sounds like a wonderful human being, Matthew. Oh, my God. <laughs> um... I hate to do a Patriots one, but I'm not as far into my kind of going back and watching the weekend. And there is something emerging here with Michael Onwenu, who I love because of the Michigan ties as well, but has been exceptional. I mean, he's played he's played swing tackle and a bit of right tackle as they've rotated that over the first two weeks. Then David Andrews got injured. They had to move Joe Tooney to centre. And he went in at left guard and was the best player on the field in the game against the Raiders. Absolutely Superb on a, on an on an outstanding offensive line in which Isaiah Wynn is is starring and in which they have the best interior offensive line in football. He stood out as the best player on the field in that game, and that's really impressive for I think a sixth round pick this year as a rookie. That is highly impressive. So he's been uh, he's been exceptional. And Kalen, take us home. I don't know if he counts as unheralded anymore, but James Robinson, the Jaguars running back, undrafted guy. And I sent out a bunch of texts about him because he went to Illinois State and I had never heard of this guy in the draft process. So I sent out a bunch of texts to scouts like, you guys, hello, why did nobody tell me about him? And a lot of scouts kind of replied and they were like, well, I liked him, but he was slow. And I think a lot of teams got afraid of his speed. Um, I think he ran in the four sixes for his 40. So not a great time for a running back. Um, and then another one described him as not being a dynamic runner. But then, you know, literally seconds later, I look and he's running and rushing for another touchdown for the Jaguars. So I think it's an example of a player being in a perfect situation where they were looking to unload veteran contracts and they can bring in um, an undrafted uh, running back like James Robinson. So I think he's in a great spot and perfect situation. And as we all know, unless you have stupid facial hair, it's very diff- very easy to go unheralded when you're playing your football in Jacksonville. Yeah. Uh, right, boys uh, and Kalen, that was going to be very sexist of me. Uh, <laughs> wonderful stuff as always. Thank you to Coach Billet for joining us as well. Make sure you go out and check out our Waiver Wire report on uh, social media as well for your fantasy pickups this week. Check out the YouTube channel and all the content that the guys are churning out at Gridiron uh, on Twitter and at UK Gridiron on Instagram as well. It's not quite as enthralling a weekend of games on paper this weekend as it was last weekend but there's a few pretty tasty matchups in there so we'll be back next week to break it all down and discuss the big stories from around the nfl this has been the gridiron show